Since childhood, I've been faithful to monsters. I have been saved and absolved by them because monsters, I believe, are patron saints of our blissful imperfection. And they allow and embody the possibility of failing and live. For 25 years, I have handcrafted very strange little tales made of motion, color, light, and shadow. And in many of these instances, in three precise instances, these strange stories, these fables, have saved my life. Once with Devil's Backbone, once with Pan's Labyrinth, and now with Shape of Water. Because as directors, these things are not just the entries in a filmography. We have made a, a deal with a particularly inefficient devil that trades three years of our lives for one entry on IMDb. <laughs> and these things are biography, and they are life. Be afraid. Be very afraid. There's nothing to fear except God. Whatever that means to you. Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? You're listening to The Fear of God, a podcast exploring the intersection between Christianity and the horror genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Fear of God, your favorite podcast on Tuesdays uh, that are conversations about the intersection between Faith and Horror, hosted by friends of nearly two decades named Nathan and Reed, one of whom is very skinny, one of whom is not as Wait much. Wait a <laughs> <laughs> Are you trying to, is this like an intervention all of a sudden? Dude. No, 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 not quite, not quite. Uh, I, although I don't know what that voice was, because usually with me uh, is one Mr. Nathan Rouse, because my name is Reed Lackey, and uh, typically with me is is Nathan, but but he's not here at the moment because he said something about having to go back to the laboratory to clean up after after somebody or something, and and uh, he was looking for some finger food. I think I can't quite remember um, exactly what he said it was something like yeah t- tastes like chicken tenders or something i don't, I don't remember exactly what, uh, what it was. oh there you are nathan there you are <laughs> you know i, I feel like I, I used the finger food joke on that stupid veterinarian vampire cannibal movie raw raw that is the food. i can't remember the dumb title of that movie that movie is terrible uh, <laughs> that movie is not terrible it's terrible yeah, yeah it's terrible. <laughs> i mean i can i can be i can be real now i was i was just you know not wow real then <laughs> anyway yes i'm back from the lab i found my finger i got it surgically reattached um rather sure. poorly so i might add ran into merman while I was in there, the merman. Sure. You know what? You know, like, like, does your '80s child brain ring a bell when I say merman? Do you know what that's from? From the '80s? 
No, my only context for it is that that guy Bradley Whitford wanted that monster Bradley oh, Whitford yeah, wanted yeah, yeah. in Cabin in the Woods. Okay, well, yeah, that's, that's not, the only. That's the only. No, real Merman was the I'm, name of a He-Man villain. Now and I know it. All, yeah, now I recall. <laughs> I wish the audience members, I wish listeners could have seen your face just then. It, it lit up well, like a light yeah, bulb. Like, whoa! Well, I well yeah, that. I was like, oh yes, yeah, Super Merman. He, he, yeah, here we go. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. My my brother, <laughs> my brother and I still still make that voice to each other as Merman from He Man. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, filmation! The glory dun, days dun, of filmation. Dun, 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 I have the power. <laughs> yes. Wow, oh, and it's great. Wow, oh, it's so great. Yeah, the shape. But of the He-Man. best part? Mm-hmm. No. So here's the thing. Tell me. I was also a fan of She-Ra. Of course. And you so the so the he don't tell me that. <laughs> so uh, the, so the, the They're He-Man. Cousins. They're cousins. That's it. They're, they're cousins. cousins. That's right. <laughs> um, the so the He-Man one had its own. You know, like it's it's machismo and cool and a great right. way to sell toys. But the. The theme song for She-Ra is, I remember it being so cheesy. It was this, this whole, like, for the honor yeah. of love. Like, yeah. I was just great. like, I don't know what this was like, this old Jim and the Holograms kind of thing. I don't know. Oh. You're just, like, crossing all the streams right now <laughs> with the 80s references. Crossing the streams like the real Ghostbusters. I, I know. You know? <laughs> I know. I did. Now, is it the Ghostbusters or the real Ghostbusters? That's two different things. Well, the cartoon, in reference to, in context to the cartoons we watched at the 80s. That's the, true. You know, It'd be but the real Ghostbusters. Did the real Ghostbusters, you know, coin the phrase "crossing the streams"? I just don't know. No, that was in exactly. the original Ghostbusters. See, we're just going yeah. all over the place. <laughs> oh, everybody! I miss the eighties. Yeah, simpler it's times. It's true. It's true. Toys R Us is going out of business, man. I don't want to talk about that. Why you got to depress know. the whole? We well, were having it's fun. Eighties, eighties. Like I have such fond memories. I remember talking my grandmother about... taking me. To Toys R Us to buy a Nintendo oh. game, and I believe it was Mickey Mousecapade. Yeah, Mickey Mousecapade. I'll own it. I played that on the Nintendo. That's right. That game was hard. It was tough. Yeah, absolutely. Oh man, I don't want to grow up, man. <laughs> I'm a Toys R Us kid. It is. It is kind of sad. Like I know we're sitting here, Human. you know, singing the praises of TV shows that were literally made. To sell toys, like that's why they were created, was to sell these toys. But we were we were just really dumb back then, though. Or were we? Or were we just awesome? Or we just? Or, well, that's a good question. I I like we were... that perspective. I like that perspective. <laughs> I'm gonna it's a very choose. Perspective. I'm gonna, in the spirit of last week and telling better stories. That's the story I'm gonna tell myself. I wasn't <laughs> dumb in the eighties. I was awesome. You could be that's like, right. oh, you fell for it. They, You watched all these TV shows that were just made to sell toys. Yeah, they were pretty <laughs> awesome toys. And I left a bunch of them at the Seafoam Motel in Panama City Beach, Florida one summer. And that that's right. motel was so nice, they kept them for a year. And when my family went back the following year, they had all our toys. All our He-Mans See? and G.I. Joes. That's an awesome story. That's right. G.I. Joe! We didn't even talk about the real American hero. I know. Oh, my gosh. Knowing is half freedom, the battle. wherever there's trouble. Oh, is there that movie about, was great? I don't mean the the live action crap. I mean no, no, no. You know, the, the cartoon movie, yes, yeah, Globulus, like the legit, yeah, Cobra Commander, Nemes- oh. Nemesis Enforcer. Yeah, he was a man. Oh my, oh my gosh, that's a, that's, yes. a, that's a great movie. <laughs> that's a great. Do movie. you remember <laughs> speaking of movies of these of these cartoons? Hi, everybody. Cobra. So- <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, that rise of Serpentor, you know, like so. Um, um, the yes. uh, but no, how yes. about like uh, the Transformers movie? But like before oh, the great. twenty Michael Bay versions, cuss, you know, like the, they cuss in it. Yeah, yeah. and it was so yeah. scandalous and, that they did. Yeah, Optimus turned God and turns into Rodimus. Yeah. Oh man, how traumatic that we had to and watch Orson him. Orson Welles like, was the voice of Unicron, right? He was. Orson yeah, Welles. I'm telling you. Citizen Kane directed and then, you know, starts his career with <laughs> Citizen Kane. Where does he wind up? Voicing the Transformers cartoon. That's right. That's right, everybody. Yes. Hey, Welcome to America. Know, everybody needed a paycheck. Everybody still needs That's a true. paycheck. Dude, if you've never if you've never listened <laughs> Hi everybody. I think we're inadvertently doing a what you watching of like forty years ago at this point. Hey, so uh, what what you watch back in nineteen eighty five? <laughs> if you've never if you've never listened to just google up google orson up. wells do it well google up youtube up whatever you if you <laughs> if you've, if you've never they say <laughs> i just in, in real time it's happening right now it's gonna be a thing google you heard it, it here first but uh orson wells doing these wine commercials mm-hmm. but he is so drunk wow. it is hysterical sort of like so or so you get you this right really now. regal I am not drunk. So you get this you get this really you get this really regal Orson Welles voice, but then whenever they go the take, he's like, you know, they're like, "All right, take 16." He's like, "Oh, the French wine is so like it sounds like it, it you have to go and and YouTube it up because it's just just Orson Welles commercial and i'm sure that'll be the first thing that pops up and it's hysterical and you'll you'll, we'll take, you'll laugh a plenty we'll take your word for it and then we'll all google up after this is you, done it's like you a, don't have to take my like word a, for it <laughs> speaking like a, of it's like a one up from super mario brothers you know like google up one up from super and then, oh yeah see boop, 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 boop. speaking of you 80s know. you just you just yeah. name dropped super mario and i, I just know. name dropped a deep cut on reading rainbow because you don't have wow. to take my word for it so yeah. so Everybody, we're living in the '80s right now. It's a uh, it's a glorious time. It's a glorious time to be to have been raised in the, in the '80s. This movie took place in the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> that just happened. Turns out I really am just dumb. I'm not awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so stupid. <laughs> My favorite part about that is listening to the sustained hiss as you, as you realized you were like, speaking of 80s, this movie takes place in the. S- oh my gosh. Uh, for the record, I knew it wasn't the 80s. I'm not that dumb. <laughs> just in the moment i was gonna say 60s and then i second guessed myself fact check me oh, when does this stuff man. take place 62 okay, 1962 see, yeah, i was right yeah. i was right yeah that's oh when, no you were right that's when all the just, merman humping happened you know it was oh wow yeah so everybody if you didn't know <laughs> if you didn't know we're closing out in a very in a clearly very punchy fashion <laughs> 
This is going to be one of our most listened to episodes. And they're going to be like, do these people ever stop talking over each other with these references and, and pop culture rabbit trails? We're actually rather um, composed on the podcast compared to normal. This is pretty normal. Oh, man. Yeah, guys, if you think we're if you think we're wackadoo when we actually, you know, you should hear one of our actual conversations with each other, which are completely unbridled. Um, but no, we are talking Speaking uh, of unbridled. this week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> we are talking about Guillermo del Toro as the as the conclusion of our series hashtag del Toro Toro Toro. We are talking about Guillermo del Toro's now Oscar winning for best director and best picture, which still surprises me. Uh, we're talking about the Shape of Water from from last year. And the spirit um, of that. And the spirit of that, my friend Lackey. Um, yes. Perhaps in a bit of a pivot from our normal. What you're watching, reading, listening to. What you're watching and reading and listening to. Um, that was my attempt at a He-Man <laughs> tune. Um, goodness gracious. Somebody take this mic away. Um, <clears throat> so, oh, a while back. This is going to be fun. Yeah. We're, a while back, we addressed pre-Oscar night what we had seen, what we thought of what we had seen. Now, both of us have seen much more of them. You've seen all of them. I, I ended up not getting to two of them, but uh, we are mm. talking about the Best Picture and Best Director winner, uh, Shape of Water. And so I thought maybe we'd unpack a little bit more. Um, yeah, let's do it. You know, <clears throat> what we saw. Goodness gracious, if I can compose myself. Um, I did that not see Call Me By Your Name or The Post. Neither of those were rentable okay. by the time... Oscar night rolled around, um, and then after the Oscars gotcha. are over, who cares? You know, um, sure, I'm sure, sort of getting there. Um, <laughs> but I did see it's a legit thing. Yeah, I did see all the other ones. Uh, so adding to my original list, I did see Three Billboards, Darkest Hour, and Lady Bird. Okay, uh, I would be curious. So I and I also saw Call Me by Your Name in the Post. So so just real quick, what did you think of Three Billboards? Your your general. Take opinion reaction to three billboards. Uh, I am an ardent fan of Francis McDormand and Sam Rockwell, and generally Woody Harrelson. I had little positive to say about three billboards. I did not. Interesting. Enjoy it. Yeah. Um. So that was a film for me that when I when I kind of immediately finished it, I liked it quite a bit, and the further I got from it, the less I liked it. So the fir- so the more I thought about it. And and the sort of the more I began to to, to kind of dissect it a little bit, the less of an of a, a favoritism I had towards it. It felt to me like what so many people hate about like or make fun of like Hallmark movies. You know, when it's just like they're so oh, okay, sure they're so cookie cutter and cheesy and and very conventional. It felt like the opposite version of that, like the dark, sure, like the. Like sure. the you know, um, mirror universe. That's a Star Trek reference, everybody. That's for you. Yeah, uh, I love the, it. The I mirror, love it. the mirror universe Hallmark movie. It's like, oh, of course this is happening. Um, sure, it sure. felt unnecessarily wallowing to me uh, in its own yeah, muck. Yeah. And and honestly, by the end of it, I was so like, I, I don't, I don't care. Um, sure, which sure. is, a, and it's I, very. I hate having that feeling. I hate having that feeling because I really oh, want I to support the production. I really like the performers, uh, but it just did not connect for me. Yeah, I can, I, I can understand that. And the film is very pleased with itself. You could oh, really yes. tell. Yes, it's, it's, it, it thought, it felt like, hey, we're talking about important things. Now, right. one thing I will say, 
I think the performances from the three of them were very strong. Yes. And I, yes. and I feel like McDormand absolutely deserved her Oscar. I feel like it was, that, that was a phenomenal performance in my opinion. I do think the script, I don't even mind the direction very much, but I think the script is, is sizably weaker than yes. it got lauded for being, uh, especially considering it was nominated as a screenplay. I'm really glad Get Out won because I was afraid that Three Billboards was going to win. And I think Get Out is a much stronger script. I know we probably have some listeners who might disagree with that, but I think Get Out is it's a fantastic script. And compared to Three Billboards, um, which feels in many ways almost kind of like a first draft. Um, wow. Like the, the, the obvious thing that, that has to happen. I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> um, well, and but I, I, spoil, we're, we're going to spoil a few of these movies, but, you know, you showed up here. But like when Woody, when Woody kills himself in the middle of the movie, I was like, of course he did that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just so like, blah, so so sure, sure, so heavy and and plotting. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. No, I get, I get that, I get that. Um, I did see the post, and I liked the post quite a bit. The, I think the problem that I would have with the post is not even really a problem at all. It's just it is exactly what you would right. think it would sure, be. Sure. So it is Spielberg and Hanks and Streep. If you like what those three creatives bring to the table you will like the post you will enjoy it you will be glad you saw it um beyond the scope of what those three can bring it it, there's not much there's not much else to say about it it's a it's a a good quality piece of work as you would expect from those three creatives sure um what do you think i was what do you think of calling by your name i was very surprised um both my wife and i were very surprised at how taken with call me by your name we were but um, here's one thing I will say: the the resistance that I had to that plot um, in general always extended around the age difference between the two protagonists. Sure, that was always what I was very concerned about. It was interesting. So, okay, this is a complete rabbit trail. So it wasn't like the the peach that it that wasn't problematic. No, <laughs> no. Didn't, didn't have a problem with I that. Say, no, no, I mean, no, you know. No, I no, mean, hey, no issue, no issue you know, there. Women um, in Rome. <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, man just said win in Rome to me about that scene in <laughs> Call Me By Your Name. Literally, win in Italy. So, so yeah, yeah, but yeah. here's what I will say. Uh, I'll say a few things about this. I was, I was a little bothered by the, before having seen the film, I was a little bothered by the age difference in the two protagonists i was glad to find out that the relationship itself was not quite as i always kind of had in my mind this assumption that the older one was like heavily pursuing the younger one Mm -hmm. i I felt a little squirmish about that um that it's that's not really the case in the film so but but yes people who might be put off by the fact that it is very much an adult um dealing with very much a 17 year old uh, that that yes that is that is a a reality to the film um, and if you're bothered by that from an either you know sort of a squeamish perspective or a moral perspective uh, I'm not even going to disagree with you because that is an element of the film and then I'll, I'm I'm going to end with some praise for it the the other thing that I will say was uh, people are not going to believe that I'm bringing all this into it but I'll be as brief as I can um, did you hear about a recent scandal on American Idol. And it was not at all, not at all. No, to call it a scandal is a bit too is 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 a bit too serious. Like Um, when the Cold War took place, I'm very ignorant of this. So please, you know. All right, here's what happened. 
So American Idol in its new version has three new judges. Gone are Simon Cowell and Paul Abdul. It's the three judges are Lionel Richie, Katy Perry, and Luke Bryan. And they had a contestant who came in. And of course, Katy Perry's catalog is what it is. And contestants frequently made jokes about some of the, you know, the judges staple hits. And so when this one contestant came in, he was clearly very shy and a bit starstruck. And they said, you know, have you kissed a girl and you liked it? And this contestant, this 19-year-old, said, um, actually, I've never, I've never kissed anybody. I've never been in a relationship, and so I've, I've, I've never kissed anybody. And Katy Perry was like, get over here right now. Like, come over here right now. And so he walked over, and she, you know, extends her cheek, and she says, you know, here, just, and he's like, just a peck on the cheek? And she's like, yeah. So she, he kisses her on the cheek, and she's like, come on, you didn't even make the, the, the smush sound. Come on, what is it? And so, sure enough, he goes in for another one. She turns her head at the last second and pecks him right on the lip. So, so then, it's, and, and here's the thing that is about it. In the moment, my wife and I were watching it, and in the moment, it's a very sort of cutesy pop culture moment. It's a very sort of like, oh, this is, you know, uh, he's got a kiss from good luck. His first kiss was Katy Perry. Oh, yay, blah, blah, blah. Well, when it aired, there were, and, and, and I, I kind of understand. At first, I was like, come on, everybody. But then I heard, I heard a couple of points that I was like, this, that's a very good point. Uh, and I'm going to loop this back into Call Me By Your Name in a second. So, basically, uh, some people were like, hey, Katy Perry should not have done that. I think she maybe did something a little inappropriate. And so then, like, one person on Twitter made a point that I thought was a really good point where it said, let's reverse the genders for a second. Let's say Luke Bryan did that to a 19-year-old female contestant. And it's like, yeah, that would have pushed all of the inappropriate buttons, which let me know in that moment. And I'm just sort of commenting on the cultural moment. So I just that's that's what I'm identifying here and looping it back into Call Me By Your Name. I was realizing that... The authoritative allowances that are almost instinctively given to many people to females versus males in those kinds of conditions uh, might be a bit broader than than to given to females than what would be afforded to males because in that moment it felt almost like a cutesy pop culture moment versus the what the reverse would have felt like if the genders were reversed. Looping it back into Call Me By Your Name... It was one thing that I was that I was sort of considering when I was thinking about this is like, okay, well, how would this story have felt if it was an older and my mind just started playing with all these things, an older male with a younger female or an older female with a younger male or two females? What would the because because in the story, it's two males. So what would what would it have felt like? How would it have felt differently? What would it have been like? And so that sent me on sort of a rabbit trail. There are two things that I would absolutely praise Call Me By Your Name for. The first of them is it's beautifully and sensitively crafted, like just in general, like like all the praise that's heaped upon it from a film craft and storytelling perspective is well-deserved. Very, very much like it made me want to go to Italy in the summer because evidently everybody just walks around in their bare feet and eats apricots and they just that's that's all that that's all they do. But the other thing that I will say is without spoiling a very emotionally sensitive and important moment in the film, the parents of the teenager in the film are phenomenal and and the parents, the, the relationship that the parents have with each other and that they have with this teenager is astounding 
And that is maybe where a lot of the praise for the film sort of is rooted and anchored. So that was a very long diatribe to tell you my thoughts on. Well, Call Me By I, Your have, Name. I have not seen Call Me By Your Name. I, I, I have I, I have literally never watched an episode of American Idol. So you just you gave me quite the education, you know, there it is. I mean, there it quite, is. At least about one little moment. Yeah, there was. I'm, I'm gonna leave all of that right there. Uh, <laughs> so you, so the post and the comment on your name. So I also saw yeah, the Darkest no, no. Hour and Lady Bird. Like, um, yes. What do you think about those? So uh, yeah, I did see Darkest Hour. It was better than I expected. That's that's about the sum of it. Um, I did see Lady Bird, and dude, I I loved some Lady Bird. I really did. Did I you? Was, yeah, <clears throat> I did. I was worried that hype would kind of sink that ship a little bit. And, and sure, you know, there's a world in which if I'd flashed back, you know, uh, uh, eight weeks when I first started hearing rumors about it and murmurings about it, that if I'd seen it, maybe even more so. But my wife and I watched it together. We, we cried our eyes out together. Um, you know, I mean, it was, it was a lovely movie. Um, as parents, I love of, Laurie Metcalf yeah, in that. Um, oh. as parents of daughters, it had a lot of really sort of heartbreaking things to say and comment on. And yeah, I love Lady Bird. I would happily encourage anyone to watch that. So wow, awesome! And what? Yeah, so, well, what? What about you? Were there others left? So no, no, no. I mean, I I liked Darkest Hour. I did like Lady Bird. Most of the films. So I saw I saw all of them. I saw Phantom Thread. I saw. I was I was impressed by all of them, but not blown away by anybody by any of them. I was not really very enamored with really any of the of the Oscar noms this year, and largely I felt like this will be ultimately a rather forgettable year which is why and this this is why when we were pre-briefing this i was thought it might be good to talk about this is because because the ones that i will walk away remembering hands down are get out Mm -hmm. and the shape of water and of course the shape of water won do we think that it deserved its win because here's what's interesting and this is we we've already talked for a, a little bit longer it's my fault but a little bit longer than we than i expected to but this is kind of the question i heard and i think i think please correct me if i'm wrong because i either read this in in one of the articles and and attributed it to you or you oh, told me don't this throw me under the bus here no 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 or, or you told me this that that it felt like the shape of water was the safe choice for best picture now if you a didn't say that or b did say that and no longer agree with it, then clarify. That was me. that was oh, that, that feels a bit um, you know accusatory there, Lackey. Um, no, that no, that I was, didn't, I didn't, that was it's comment, not meant to be antagonistic. That was commentary I heard that I passed along to you as as food I, for, yeah, food I might have heard it in the same place. Yeah. Sure, um, sure, but but it's interesting because like for for a movie like The Shape of Water to be considered a safe entry for a Best Picture is pretty significant like that that feels to me like i would have thought to be honest with you i would have thought darkest hour would have been like a safer yeah, or yeah. Dunkirk I mean, that's, that's, would have been like a safer darkest i mean that's, or the post that's like textbook definition yeah of, oh the if the posted one had been like that's the safe choice safe, yeah safe word right right yes exactly um well but, I, I yeah mean, I, in terms of you know <clears throat> forgettability or, or or you know i i personally loved as we talked about in here, get out. I really, really liked Phantom Thread a lot more than I even I thought I would. I mm. adored Lady Bird. That was one. That's one. It's so sharply written. I would happily rewatch that. And 
I don't know. I, I do I, want to interject real quick because yeah. I, I, I don't want to derail you, but my favorite line spoken in any of the Oscar winners uh, or any of the Oscar nominees was said in Phantom Thread when she tries to bring him tea mm-hmm. and then she and then she leaves and she's like, I'm leaving. He says, you're the tea is leaving. The interruption is staying right here oh, with me. That's so good. <laughs> that's, so that's one of my favorite lines. Well, I, think I, I've ever I was heard unfamiliar completely with Leslie Manville and she man, good oh, gracious. Okay. All three yeah. of those leads were just riveting yeah. to me as far as shape of water goes i think shape of water suffered for me from and and this is not playing a card that would be revealed later in our talk even though we're already at probably the 30 minute mark i think shape of water is not a movie i went to see thinking this is going to be in the best picture conversation and so then we're just kind of surprised sure. in other words you know those, sometimes you'll like see a movie ahead of time i remember this and people are gonna jump on me if they're super fans of this I remember watching Michael Clayton years ago, months before, oh, yeah. sure, months before sure. it entered the conversation, and then it did, and I was like, "Really? Yeah, maybe, mm. maybe I missed something here." Um, similar, a little bit similar sort of scenario here, where Saw Shape of Water kind of had an appreciation for it, would not have in that moment put it in the best picture bucket, and so then when it starts getting a lot of that talk kind of surprised me and then when it won it really surprised me again not because i was like what a terrible movie just sure it felt so unexpectedly in the mix but yeah maybe yeah, maybe, maybe that speaks to or validates what you're saying in terms of it is a memorability of the 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 cat you know the nominees sure it well it is remarkable I believe, and I would, I would need to go back. I know that it's not the the first one nominated. I definitely know it's not the first one nominated. But I think it's the first Best Picture winner that would be remotely considered science fiction. I think that it is. I mean, it's one of those funny things where it's like I, I heard it attributed as the safe choice, and I'm sitting here thinking like, you're calling a film where it wasn't me. It wasn't me. No, I know. No, no, no. I'm not saying you, okay. but like I was, the, the the proverbial right, um, right. editorial right. is calling the film uh, about a mute girl, her gay neighbor, her black coworker cavorting with a Russian, you know, scientist to free and ultimately start a relationship with a fish man. The safe choice, like honestly, really. <laughs> And I'm thinking that it was it was remarkable to me that that a film that felt so I don't want to necessarily say politically charged, although maybe I should because there's a lot of politics going on in the film, but like a film that felt so charged socially with some social sort of touch points uh, to be considered or regarded the safe choice just uh, just struck me as odd. Um, I did think it would win. Really, I, it was it was my pick. I knew. So well, is this all know, about just validating you, Reed? Is that was this a yeah, long-winded yeah, way of kinda, you know you tell this American Idol story? You're like, I'm just no, trying to I get kinda, to the part where I say I knew it was going to win, and here we are. It's it's listen, it's it's been a hard week, and so I just want <laughs> you know I just want some validation. I just you, want some validation. You is kind. You is smart. <laughs> um, I will say I think having just rewatched Pan's Labyrinth for me, and and maybe I need to spend some more time with Shape of Water, kind of swimming around. You know, um, but Pan's Labyrinth is so pitch perfect. It, I mean, it really is. Yes. I mean, we gave it a 9.5. It's it's true. Listeners, if you have not checked out our Pan's Labyrinth conversation, go back and listen to it. Well, yeah, it's pardon the pun, but good, let's let's just dive into the shape of water here. I mean, we're here. Um, it's, <laughs> sure. it's got a very particular shape. I will. I will say that. 
but okay <laughs> that's all i'll say um so <laughs> goodness gracious this movie you know you know what's okay so what? here's what's really what? funny Tell about me that what's funny so we had shout out scott roach longtime listener mm. we adore you thank you for sticking with us for so long so um but he had asked on social media he had uh tweeted us directly and said like you know what's your thoughts on the sexuality of the shape of, in in the shape of water and and to be honest even in the midst of this conversation like that. i don't remember seeing that yeah 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 so he tweeted he tweeted us directly and sorry scott um but and so like even entering into this conversation i'm somewhat intimidated um to share some of my thoughts and i really hope that scott and other listeners of of a similar mind frame would not be scandalized by my general thoughts on it but one of the things that and and I'll need to substantiate this with some other things in the film, but to me, the shape of water, it would be really easy as you and I frequently do off mic. I'll just go ahead and call us both out on this as we frequently do off mic. And as we have at least a handful of times on mic, um, sort of joke about, Oh, the, the shape of water has a particular shape, but to me, and I, 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 I definitely feel that the film is, Although I do think sexuality is a very deliberate component. Sure. I, th- I think it's I think it's less about sexuality than it is about intimacy. And maybe that'll be, you know, propped up a bit more by the by what I, you know, well, some of the other things and, I saw in it. But and, and hear me, you know, I, I, believe it or not, Reed and listener, uh, I can be a mature adult. Sometimes, um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I will try to work this out of my system because no, I, I'm with you. I mean, I think I was impressed i mean we're, we're here we go straight forward i was impressed Constantly. yeah I was let's impre- dive in i was impressed with del toro's willingness and the 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 expressed sexuality uh of sally hawkins character sure i was like yeah, sure you go like like because yeah, yeah. I, I remember and hear me I'm, I'm not you know sort of endorsing or passing judgment one way or the other i'm simply saying like we are so used to an extremely male version of sexuality presented in film. Right. Right. Um, yes. That uh, to see such a feminized version of it was as, as this happens sometimes, you know, you see what is a normal paradigm, the same actions, the paradigm gets switched and it jars you. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're, you're like, yeah. Oh wow. I'm not used to seeing this expressed in a movie but I really shouldn't have a problem with this because of all the other things I'm kind of okay with when it's male characters exercising right, their sexuality right. in other films. So I, I don't know. I really applaud I him that I, it, it is clearly very intentional. I would agree with you that, you know, stepping out of my juvenile juvenility, if you will, that, that there is a very strong conversation about intimacy, about connection. And, and like on the one hand, I'm very much with you. It's about intimacy. On the other hand, I, I do think he's very much sort of making this sort of feminine sexual empowerment kind of story too. You know, she is very I much think you're right. yeah. exercising her own agency throughout the story, regardless of the sexual component or not. Um, anyway, sure. well, let's, let's, let's dial back a little bit in terms of, and, and just like get into the shallows a little bit. Um, <laughs> sure. Sure. You know, I, I think I was so there, a listener could accuse me of, of not liking this movie and I don't, want that heard there's a very and we can get into this a little bit later you and i may have said this on mic before i know we've said it off pod 
but there's a way in which I feel like Shape of Water starts to overstay its welcome, if not actually does, but that's a structural yes. sort of thing. Um, yes. That said, I was so thrilled with like the conceit because I I had not seen a trailer before going to see it. Oh wow! So okay, I, I did not. I did not remember. All that. I knew was Del Toro and some buzz. You know, that's that's really all I knew. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, and I just loved. I can't remember the actual sequence of the 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 cut here, but Octavia Spencer and Sally Hawkins' observance of of bringing Doug Jones, the merman, we'll, we'll just call him that for for shorthand, the merman into the the story, and I just loved yeah. the notion of like. You know, in, in a world of blockbuster tentpole, I mean, I, we, Infinity War is coming at the end of the month. Uh, I'm not sure when this sure, will air. Yeah. Maybe that week. Right before it. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Where, you know, Thanos is destroying the universe or something. I loved the notion of a story that, that observed Thanos trying to destroy the universe from the perspective of the janitor trying to clean up his mess. You know, I just, I really, yes. I yes. really loved that. And it was an immediate hook for me. I was like, that is yeah. good. That is cool. I really dig that conceit. So right from the bat, he he kind of had me uh, hooked into the story, if you will. Yeah. There's a line. So this would be something that I would normally introduce later in themes, but it's not relevant to where I want to go with themes. There's a um, an artist by the name of Patty Griffin. Oh yeah. And she's uh, she's wonderful. She has shout a song. Out, shout out Reed Lackey. Got me in, got me into Patty. That's right. I have good taste. So. She has a song called Mary. Sheesh, that's a good and song. And Mary is a beautiful, oh, it's a beautiful and haunting song. But one of the reasons I love it so much is the line in it where in the line, because it, it's, it, it's, it's very allegorical, but it is, it is alluding to Mary, the mother of Jesus frequently. And the refrain in the chorus says, Jesus said, mother, I couldn't stay another day longer and glides right by and leaves a kiss upon her face. And while the angels were singing his praises in a blaze of glory, Mary stays behind and starts cleaning up the place. And I found that beautiful and sure. and poetic and haunting and uh, and and wonderful. And yes, so all of that to echo and prop up this idea of like yes, that there's um, that there's substance happening in the you know in the in the custodial workings of right, these right. big grand things happening and i think that was that's one of his you know first of many smart decisions in telling this story is to tell it from that from that perspective well and it's just um, such a fun again you, you have to think of it from the standpoint like I, I really didn't know anything about the film going into it <clears throat> so it was kind of revealing itself in 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 real time to me and sure as as the sort of merman story starts to reveal itself and even the creature design which in true del toro fashion is just stinking perfect i mean it's, oh, it's just perfect staggering yes. um but i oh. just had this like fun and i have you to thank for this too reed you're you're a good fella and and <laughs> I, I try I'm, to be I'm, a good I'm friend pr i'm proud I to try. know you um <laughs> and i was like this is so cool this is like you you could almost envision the end of uh the creature from the black lagoon and then mm, this mm -hmm. like it they they kind of seamlessly sort of partner with each other and it's very much kind of a a, a spiritual cousin to that story and it's clear del toro's Absolutely. affection for that type of stuff so no it, there's a there's a lot positive for it and i i guess i'm just yeah to defend what someone might hear as my 
kind of picking on the movie. Well, and to be honest, I was intimidated to go into this conversation because I didn't know quite what I would say about it. And I didn't know exactly where to begin. There's, you know, there's a somewhat, I won't call it an on the nose theme, but there's an overt theme of, you know, sort of just the, the otherness of people. Right. And I definitely think that theme is worth, you know, mentioning. It's something we talk about on the show uh, frequently. Um, But I was a bit intimidated to kind of wander into what this this film was trying to reach for um and i think part of that is we 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 discussed last week pan's labyrinth and pan's labyrinth is deep and rich and ambitious and the metaphors are abundant nearly every 5 minutes of the film has some new thing that you could parse out and dissect and discuss that one 5 minute sequence sure shape of water is I'm I'm going to say only slightly less deep in terms of its uh, of its complexity, but on the nose, like on the surface, feels like a very straightforward story. Right, right. And so that's why it's a little intimidating to me because it's posing as a very direct story when there's a lot going on under the surface. Again, Shape of Water. There's all kinds of puns, but there's a lot going on under the surface. Pan's Labyrinth. You watch, and yes, you know, like this is a a rich, deep, dense film. Right. Whereas Shape of Water is kind of posing as not that, as posing as much more straightforward. And then it's not. And and here was the experience that I had is that prepping for this conversation, I was thinking, okay, what what kind of things will I will I try to bring up? What kind of things did I like? Did I not like? And 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 almost as if like the more I thought about it, I was like, dang, yeah, you could make an illusion there. Oh, dang. I feel like that's going on in the movie. Oh, I feel like it's this. I feel like it's that. And and I just began to be a bit overwhelmed. Uh, one might say again, forgive the puns, flooded by a wave of 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 different elements thematic elements to to this story and to what it was i do think it's significant that it's not only uh you know a woman but a a mute woman yes a voiceless right. if you will woman and and so and obviously she has communicative means she's signed she signs frequently throughout the film um but she has no voice herself uh, since birth has had no voice so came into the world so, through and 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 she she carries scar tissue so you could let's go ahead and camp on the first metaphor that's that's right here with um with Sally Hawkins's character that scars were put there by people she did not she does not know how she got those scars, um, but somehow that took away her voice. And it's like thinking of people in society who were born into conditions in which like, hey, I don't know why this is the way it is. Somebody put it this way, but I have no voice to the situation. Can I, I can't can speak I to the situation. Um, yeah, and, go ahead. And you can clarify. I feel like we're we're leaving the shallows and starting to wade into the deeps, um, which is totally fine. <laughs> sure, can, sure. Yeah. Right, right before we get there, can we do a checklist real quick? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Like if, if we were to bucket these as likes, dislikes, um, I have, what is it? Eight words. Go right ahead. Michael Shannon. Mm-hmm. Goodness gracious. I love that man. He is. Oh yeah. He's he fantastic. Is, he is so dope. Can I say that? He's so dope in everything he's in. Yeah. I'm like, man, he's great. You, you're in take shelter. You're this soft wounded dude. You're in shape of water. You are an SOB of the highest order. Yes. I mean, you tear your own stinking finger off. That's disgusting. Um, Michael Shannon, Octavia Spencer. What a, what a treasure. I love that woman. She's great. And She's then great. let's, let's, the, the, the last four words, like we got to camp out here for a second. Read friggin' Richard Jenkins. Holy crap. 
Holy yes. cow. I, I, yes. He's so I wonderful. I love Richard Jenkins. You know? I mean, I love Richard Jenkins. And he is so great in this film. I mean. Oh, he's wonderful. My he's goodness. a treasure. Yeah, what he's wonderful. An amazing performance. Goodness gracious, Richard Jenkins. And I'd seen her in other stuff, but I have never been so captivated by Sally Hawkins. She was just yeah. effervescent. I mean, she was amazing to watch in, in this. Indeed. But can I confess that the night that my wife and I watched The Shape of Water, mm-hmm. I had just taken my son to see Paddington 2. <laughs> and so... That's a, so in quite that, a dynamic shift there. And so in that That's opening hilarious. scene, I was like, Mrs. Brown, oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? It's, it was alarming. It was alarming. Yes. I'll just leave it at yes. that. It was alarming. Yes. Um, so, but no, I, I and, and here's what's great about her performance is by necessity and by design, she has to convey so yes. much without the use of her voice. Yes. She has to convey so much through her her body and through her her face and through her hands. She has to communicate so much, and she does so so effectively. Yep. I I see every thought that crosses that character's mind. The small touches that Del Toro puts in and that she embraces of the tap dance as oh, she's walking so, out the hallway to, so to to work. Um, it is. It's very lovely. It's it's a lovely and a very wonderfully realized character. And yes, you know, first time viewers of the film, um, there's some nudity in the opening five minutes of the film that might be a bit jarring, but it is a very lovely and and I will go ahead and say, despite uh, those first five minutes, a very sensitive portrayal yep. um, and a very sensitive treatment. And you alluded to earlier, I think that even those first five minutes speaks to what del toro is i think very deliberately going after which is the empowerment of the feminine sexuality yes which you and i could not be less equipped to speak to but i do think is something very uh intentional on the director's part and i think uh handled very effectively in the film you know what's funny Um, i'm gonna interject a random aside here and you know we are we are in a shifting culture on some of these topics and for a lot of good you know, not not 100% good, but for a lot of good, to, to a lot of good ends. And I remember watching, this is going to seem random, but I remember watching The Shining. And that movie was made in what, 70, early 70s? 80. 80, okay. Um, yeah. You Feel free to push back on this, but it's what struck me in watching it. The scene of the bathtub woman and how okay. the way that is shot. Now, one, I can't remember if that scene is actually in the book or not. Um, but regardless, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, it yeah, would it yeah. would more or less stand. Terrifying um, in the book, but the way that is shot feels very intentionally titillating. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. And and again, I know it's an odd parallel here, but again, then you watch Shape of Water, which, as you just pointed out, it's it's empowering, it's sensitive, it's right, artfully right. rendered. Yes. It is not intended as that. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know. I just I really respect what he went for in that pursuit in this particular film. But yeah, I mean, and I think it, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and I think it is, it is very much worth, very much intentional and very much worth noting that 
we keep alluding to, and if listeners have not seen the film and don't know and haven't implied it by our comments already, um, there is a, a, a character in this film that is, uh, there's allusions to the fact that maybe it's supernatural, well, it's definitely supernatural, might even be a deity of sorts, um, and is a, is a, is a creature, this, this amphibian type of, uh, creature, as it were. Yeah. And, um, the, the, the merman, I think it is very intentional that when they are intimate and they are intimate in the film, it is her. I won't necessarily say pursuing him, but that's that's kind of what it is. It is her sort of sort of she is the one who very much I'm I'm searching for a word that's not uh, manipulates. But but I mean, manipulates not in the coercive initiates 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 is the word I'm looking for. She's the one who initiates that intimacy. And I think that's right in line with what Del Toro is seeking in the the expressions of sexuality that are made in the film. Is it's very much uh, female empowered, countercultural to a what the, the the typical portrayal of a male driven right. sort of thing. Um, well, and why you're why you're we're fumbling for those words in the sense of like why words like manipulation or coercion are not applicable here is her initiation is in response to a connection and an intimacy that they've developed. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like it is, it not, is not. It is not a power yes. dynamic. It is exactly, and, right. th- and that, and perhaps you go some somewhere with this thematically, but that is one of the richest aspects to the film itself. Is oh, I I wholeheartedly you know, agree. Char- yes. As as many great love stories are, it is not born of power dynamic and struggle and or abuse, but a- out of you know, intimacy and connectedness across a particular sort of divide, in this case being his shunnedness for the literal thing he is, her uh, operating on the fringe of society because of her own mute nature, you know, like these, yes, I mean, in, yes. in one of the most beautiful scenes, let's say, of the year of cinema, when she is... is in heated debate with Richard Jenkins and, and I think think her word is, you know, he doesn't see me as incomplete, you know, referring to, I have the, I have the quote right here and and I'd like, I'd like to say the whole thing. It says, when he looks at me, the way he looks at me, he does not know what I lack Mm. or how I am incomplete. He sees me for what I am as I am. He's happy to see me. Every time, every day, and then this is a clincher for me. Now I can either save him or let him die, hmm. and it's it, it speaks. And this all happens be prior to the intimate moment that we're just sure. that we yeah, yeah. are alluding to. Um, because so so, I definitely think the film is saying like, hey, th- it is it is an it is a connection, a physical connection that is born of an emotional yes, and, totally. dare I say, spiritual connection. It is not um, just – and that's why when people – I want to be sensitive here because uh, I can I can understand some of the kickback. It is not as simple – Del Toro's work is not simple – but it is not as simple as woman falls in love with a fish. Right, that is right, right, very right. reductive and dismissive to to say it that way. Because I will even go so far as to say the film, if you sit and watch that film and walk away with that character being to you little more than another animal, right, you have right, missed right, a right. huge 
element of the film because it is not merely that he is this anthropomorphized fish. Right. He is a he is an otherness being. Right. And Del Toro, I had read in an interview that he had said he approached the story and tried to not do the Beauty and the Beast thing. Yeah. Where it is you can go one of two ways with Beauty and the Beast. And the first is she falls in love with a beast, but then gets rewarded by him turning into a very plastic, ordinary prince. Uh, I, I That's kind of dismissive to the story of Beauty and the Beast, but I'm going to move on because that was those was sort of his summary. And he said, or you could go the other route and turn it into this kind of lascivious, kind of uh, almost gross, perverted thing, uh, which is not what he wanted to do. Right. He wanted to portray two beings f- literally from other worlds, from complete other worlds, coming together and having a deeply intimate, very real connection. Sure. That then culminates in the natural place that very real, ultimately intimate connections culminate. Right. And so and so that is what he was striving for in his crafting of this of this narrative. So I think, you know, for for people who would question the sexual nature of it. Yes, it is. I think it is very reductive. To say it is merely woman falls in love with fish man, um, I think there is something much deeper and and more powerful going on in the subtext of the film. And I think Del Toro, for me, achieved that level of striking that balance where it is is not just well, one it's, thing. It's kind of what's impressive about him as a storyteller, too, is as juvenile as, as it is possible to be with some of the, the minute facets of the story, like... He's asking a lot of you as a viewer to handle this, very much handle this story maturely and recognize very it much. for more than what that reductionistic interpretation would be. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. And, and I think that's kudos to him as a storyteller for kind of not not catering to that lowest common denominator, if you will. Sure. And I am. Uh, there are listeners who have probably just tuned in for this film and there may be longstanding listeners who have been like, okay, Reed finally went too far uh, with what I'm about to say. We mentioned in Pan's Labyrinth, and I think we may have mentioned it in other places in our series, that uh, Guillermo del Toro was raised Catholic. He is now a lapsed Catholic. So he is in a very specific place where because he was saturated with it so much as a child, Catholicism largely informs much of his narrative prowess as a storyteller, but at the same time, he does not currently adhere to organized religion. He is a lapsed Catholic, and he is not a religious person. I think to uh, present him as such would be a disservice to him. But at the same time, you cannot divorce his religious upbringing from the stories that he tells and how he interprets these uh, archetypes, as it were. What I, when I was mulling over exactly how to approach this story, I could not get away from the line that Michael Shannon's character Strickland says when he essentially thinks he's killed the creature towards the climax of the film. Yeah, spoilers are plenty. He thinks he's killed the creature, but then the creature resurrects. And when the creature resurrects, Strickland has a line where he directly looks at him and says, I think he uses a curse word, and then says, you are a god. And... I could not get away. I, I could not get away from what I felt like Del Toro was infusing into this story about. And this is where listeners are going to be like, Reed, you're going too far. This is too much. But I'm just going to say it. I think Del Toro is scratching at a couple of things. First, on one level, 
intimacy with the other, two people from two totally different worlds coming into an intimate connection. I think that's an element of the film. And I think there's a way you could look at the film and not stretch too much to say intimacy with the divine, intimacy with something you cannot or the unknown, something you cannot understand. Sure. Something that is beyond your capacity to control, to coerce, to, to navigate. All you can do is in, is as Eliza does initiate contact and initiate um, intimacy, as it were. She doesn't even know in the moment that it happens that it's going to work. I mean, not to be too graphic or whatever, um, but she does not even know that it's that what she's trying for will work. And Octavia Spencer's character even asks her a little bit later, like, how, like, how does this work? And so, you know, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But it's one of these things where I think. As I was as I was mulling that over in my mind, and then I began to think of so many of the other illusions, we 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 quoted her earlier, this notion of with the divine or with the other, and you know, Nathan, you and I are are believers. So when we hear language like, you know, he does not know what I lack, he does not see how I'm sure, incomplete, sure. he sees me for what I am, as I am, I'm like, holy cow, like there's so much of what we would describe as being Jesus's compulsion to to, to you to draw near to him mm-hmm. that is present in that kind of 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 language that kind of acceptance that kind of open armed acceptance of you know uh, and even getting to the degree of because there's a scene you know the less we say about what happens to that poor cat the the better <laughs> but there is a scene where, um, you know, he he is accosted, as it were, by a cat, and things don't go well for the cat. I'll just leave it at that. But Richard Jenkins' character says, when he's explaining it to Eliza, says, he's a wild creature. He can't be other than what he is. He's a wild creature. And so then, in my mind, as I'm going down this this trail, all these things about... You and I have talked about uh, how unsafe it can be to be in a relationship with the divine and how how, you know, the the old Narnia quote that uh, like, no, he is not safe, but he is good, you know, and all of these different things start to sort of connect and start to bubble up in my heart and mind as I'm thinking about what's what's playing out in this film. And I think it is sizably significant that. These people from these disparate places, you, you get your, your, your voiceless woman in Eliza, um, you get your, your African-American co-worker um, in, in Octavia Spencer's character. I need to just pull up IMDb so I can actually have the cast characters' names here. But, um, and then you get Richard Jenkins' character, who is gay and is unable to gain some traction in the professional world it's largely alluded to because of his orientation and then you get the the russian spy who is essentially an immigrant i mean there's there's politics all over this this um little microcosmic grouping of people and they're all brought together by a a being as uh, richard jenkins character would say it's a him now it's not an it it's a him um, they're brought together by this being to protect and to um, get to know and to, you know, sort of understand as best they can this this other being mm-hmm. that is not only the disparate others of the world, but is a disparate other of the supernatural world sure. of the, uh, you know, of the something else. And I don't I don't know. It's just like the further I get from it the more that kind of speaks to me on this very subtextual and perhaps subconscious level about 
how willing we are to, as we've talked about on this show before, bucket people and categorize people and compartmentalize people and put you, oh, you're this. Right. So right, you right. so you fit into this category. Whereas relationships and interactions and longstanding friendships and connections on a deep spiritual subtextual level do not break down that easily. Right. They do not sure. fit those molds. And the, the harder we try to make them do that, the more frustrated we will become, the more we'll, we'll be like the, do you recall how, and again, Del Toro is a very intentional filmmaker. Do you recall how deliberately biblical, but also deliberately Old Testament Strickland, uh, Michael Shannon's oh, character's yeah. name, oh, yeah. his language is? That his language is very much, he's like, God made, you know, like, we're made in the image right, of God. And then right, he's, he's right. saying this to Octavia Spencer, which it's a very disrespectful thing to say to her. He said, we're made in the image of God, you know, like, God looks like me, or even you, but probably more like me. Right. Oh, And yes. it's like, yeah. you know, that, that way of seeing things. Well, and I, I wonder, and I don't want to take away from what you were, in, you know, sort of inferring thematically there, but to maybe add another dimension to it, for me personally... Um, I hope this makes sense. I think there's a little more punch. I, I'm with you, you know, uh, Shannon's characters after he shoots the merman and, and, you know, you are God or whatever that exact line is like, yes, that we can, we can play with that and tinker with that. But I think, I almost think there's something more instructive to not deify the merman in the sense okay. that, and, and again, I, I think your thematic idea totally works and is worth exploring exploration um but i also think there's this interesting way the movie keeps keeps pushing you to to ponder and empathize with the other and what i mean by that is you've got this outermost circle of well you could even say the russian spy but michael shannon's character the white traditional conventional man we're, we're made in the yeah. image of god oh, yeah. he is not like that's the outermost circle well then you know, uh, unquestionably, maybe maybe even Octavia Spencer is next, who who, though a minority, is is still a able-bodied minority woman. Yes, uh, uh, she is farther degrees from Michael Shannon. But then you have in the 1960s Richard Jenkins, homosexual character. You know what I mean? We right, keep getting right. down this line of tweaked identity. To then you've got a literal voiceless woman trying to learn how to operate in agency in a society and culture that doesn't value her. Right. And then you have the literal other, uh, whether it's otherworldly or, uh, you know, other species or however we're going to say that. I think, I think that's to me, part of what the movie keeps pushing you towards is like empathy. I mean, we have a, <laughs> We have a conversation coming down the line. Spoiler alert! Uh, all about the notion of empathy and how Tune in next week, everybody. You know the the call of the of of the faithful life is is empathy almost to an absurd degree. I'll I'll, I'll say yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, and and I think this movie really goes the distance there. And and it's interesting because it's before this conversation, I had definitely been pondering the Beauty and the Beast kind of analog. And so it is sure. kind of interesting to hear you comment on Del Toro's exploration of that or, or sort of ponderance of that in, in the execution of this. Like, pick pick some version of quote-unquote taboo relational dynamic, whether 
at a certain point in time it was interracial couples, whether at a certain point in time it's homosexual couples, like the thing we are uncomfortable and unsure of, this movie is just amping up to 11. You know what I mean? And, right, and sort of right. inviting you to, in almost a real literal way, like where on the spectrum, where on the paradigm are you in this lineup of characters? You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. I don't know. I, I, I am like, I don't want it all to hear you to hear me take away from what you were saying. Cause I think what you were saying is really valid. No, I don't. Yeah. Um, I just think for me personally, there was something powerful about just when, when the literal other, which borrows a little bit from what you were saying, when the literal other is in your midst on down the line of, of varying degrees of other, what do we do and how do we approach and, and, what does empathy look like? What is, um, it's, it's almost like our reference to randomly Planet of the apes a couple times over the last few months of when in the Planet of the apes, the physical apes are starting to be more human than the humans themselves. You know, what, right, what does that right. do? Yes. And what does that force us to consider and ponder about ourselves? Similarly here, when the absolute non-human is displaying sentience and intelligence and higher thinking that we would associate with, Right, a creature right. and being definitely worthy of compassion. You know, wh- how do we deal with that? You know, yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's what. Obviously, we've we've talked every single episode about Del Toro's inherent compassion as a filmmaker. Sure. And in many ways, even though I would say Pan's Labyrinth is the pinnacle of his creative output, I think this is the the sort of a stronger and perhaps the strongest representation of that aspect of his storytelling capabilities of sure. the 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 capacity to exude and generate empathy for someone unlike you for right. someone unlike right. yourself right. and you know what I, th- th- this is gonna this is gonna sound so random at first but I th- I thought of I thought of three different things. Uh, three different sort of uh, Bible, biblical elements, if you will, as I was pondering this story. So the, the the first one is the easiest to sort of mention and then skirt past. So I'll start with it. And that's that, uh, you know, Strickland says, uh, again, that's Michael Shannon's character. I don't know why I can remember his name and nobody else's. But um, so Strickland says uh, that this thing was what he calls, uh, you know, the, the, the gill man, the merman said this thing is is an affront. He calls it an affront. And I, I don't know why in thinking about it, I just kept thinking about, and I, 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 I hear you, I don't want to backpedal us on the notion of, you know, deifying the merman. I think there's a lot of value to what you said about just empathy for the other. Um, so forgive me when this language brushes up against that again. That uh, just sort of the scandal of the presence of Jesus, mm-hmm. like the 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 effrontery of the divine colliding with the human, mm-hmm. which which is at its root, yeah, it did it did create a tremendous amount of offense and created a tremendous an, an effrontery of like, oh no, wait, you know that's not that's not possible, that's not allowed that a that a man that we can see and feel and touch could say to another i forgive your sins you right. know like that's that 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 was an aff- that was an effrontery to it so strickland's language there just sort of you know brought my mind back there but the stronger illusion i'm going to i'm going to mention the the sort of farther out there and then i'll come back around to my third thing so the the second thing that i thought of and 
This is going to sound odd at first, but I thought of the story of Ruth. This is going to sound so odd at first, but for, for listeners who may not know uh, the, the basic fundamentals of the story of Ruth is that Ruth was not a Jew. She was a Moabite, and she married the uh, son of a woman named Naomi, and Naomi's uh, husband and her two sons uh, die in a plague. And so Naomi basically says to um, Ruth and to Orpah, her other daughter-in-law, said, go back to where to your people. Basically, I release you from whatever obligation you had to me. Go back to your people. I'm going to go back to my people. And Ruth says to her to her mother-in-law, she says something that we take a lot of pride in. And then I'm going somewhere. I'll connect it back to Shape of Water. And then I have yet a third thing to, to, to say. <laughs> Listeners, bear with me. Um but uh, so Ruth says to Naomi, she says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Uh, this is in Ruth chapter one, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And here's what stuck out to me so, so much. I don't know if you remember this or not, but like in the opening segments of the film, because she lives kind of uh, tangential to this uh, cineplex, right, this multiplex. Right. And I always, th- I always thought it was so odd and I didn't connect the dots until I was sort of rabbit trailing down this. But the, the, she's watching a film. She's watching an old film from the 50s. That film is, the, it is a, an adaptation of, of Ruth. It's an adaptation of the book of Ruth, and that's on the marquee, like the book of Ruth. And so then I got to thinking about all these connections about, like, um, Ruth in the story in the Bible, she decides to go with Naomi, and as a result, she's she's basically saying, like, I will be part of your world. I will give up my world to be part of your world, which is... Spoiler alert, everybody, the exact thing that happens in the final moments of The Shape of Water is that Eliza abandons the human world to go and be with, you know, with uh, her new love, as it were, um, who heals her and makes her whole and resurrects her and then and then goes off and does that. And so so all those, you know, uh, pistons are kind of firing off in my in my brain. And that led me back to so you have your the effrontery of the contact of of Christ being with the divine uh, and the human, and then you have the story of Ruth and abandoning sort of what you were to embrace something other, as it were. And then I thought about the blind man in the temple, and the blind man in the temple, uh, as I know it from the Gospel of John, I believe it's chapter nine. Uh, I'll look it up in a second, but. The blind man from from the Gospel of John who is healed by Jesus, but when his eyes are open, Jesus is gone and he's Jesus is nowhere to be found. So this blind man goes on a on a quest, uh, this this uh, very sort of brief quest to try to figure out who healed me, like like who was this man who opened my eyes? Who who was it? And then he is accosted at every side by the Pharisees who are like, hey, this man healed you on the Sabbath. So if he did this for you, he's a sinner. Right. If he did this to you, he broke the law. He did this other thing. And then the, the, the man's friends abandon him. And then he's, he's a, a, a mockery and a ridicule. And then the man's own parents, the blind man's own parents come. And when the Pharisees accost them, they're like, he can answer for himself because and the scripture even calls out that they're scared of the Pharisees. And so they so they abandon their own child. And then the, the, the Pharisees say to him in uh, John uh, chapter nine, 
And it said, you know, they said to him in verse 16, how can a sinner perform such signs? And then they're, they're just accosting him, saying that this was a sinner, this was a sinner. And then in verse 24 of John chapter 9, it says, A second time they summoned him, uh, the man who had been blind, and say, Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, We know this man is a sinner. And verse 25 is what I honed in on. He replied, Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. And there was something... Connecting all of these dots together, something about moving beyond the world you know into a world you don't. Sure. Being invited by something potentially offensive or affronting into into something unknown. Right. And and then to to have as your only basis, I don't know. I don't know how all this works. I don't know right, right, the right, ins and right. outs. I don't know the ups, downs, the particulars of this law, that law, anything. But but to say, okay, I was blind before, and now I can see. Like that, that level and degree of mystery just really, it it sparked something in me. And I don't even know that I have the full context right now to to articulate a bumper sticker button to put on that about the shape of water. I only know because we explore, we don't explain. I only know that that's an exploration that the shape of water in thinking about it for this conversation uh, awoke in me. This idea that there are things beyond our comprehension um, and we would love to neatly categorize and right. neatly compartmentalize them. Well, and it's but, uh, yeah. uh, David Gushy, whom uh, uh, referenced heavily at the top of the year, uh, as opposed to a shift, would call that a paradigm leap. You know, when we, okay, the, sure. the, the notion of what you're describing in the sense that, you know, the, we throw up our hands at the accusers and say, I don't know, <laughs> but this is, yeah. but this is what I know. I once was blind, but yes. now I see. And, and I think, you know, so much of faith is simply that, you know, yeah. um, it's not recitation of of this edict or that decree or this law or that verse, it is simply, you know what guys, I, I really don't know all the things you're talking about. I do know this. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, and, and in that I will walk or swim as the case yeah. may be, um, <laughs> yes. you know, and so no, I, I well, can, and yeah, go ahead. And, and like the Samaritan woman at the well who had a similar confession, though, not as poetically expressed where she basically, you know, after her conversation with Jesus went back into the city and said, come and hear a man, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Right. Just the simple, the simple acknowledgement as it were that he knows me, right. He knows who I am. And, you know, getting back to the, the Eliza uh, characters, you know, he, he sees he does not see what I lack. Right. right he does. Right, right, he right. does not see how I am broken. He does not see how I am messed up. He does not see how I am inferior, sure. how I am beneath. Right. Right. Um, he, do, he does not see that. And I think there's a real significant power to the undercurrent, <laughs> the shape of water again. <laughs> Uh, the undercurrent of this story's theme that uh, of that level, that degree of acceptance of the other. Isn't it funny um, how often we, in our comings and goings, use aquatic uh, metaphors and don't realize <laughs> it until we're literally talking about a movie called The Shape of Water? It's true. Yes, it's very true. <laughs> well, that's, but, you know, and... Yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I feel like right. you keep wanting to, to, to wind us down and then I just keep getting it's ramped okay. back up. But but 
like Christ himself said, not about not necessarily about about water, but about wind that, you know, you, you don't know where the spirit's going to go. Right. It is it, it is a thing unto itself. You can see the effect. You can see the impact that it has, um, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. And that degree of mystery is something akin to what we as believers are invited into, sure. as it were. And so, uh, so yeah, that's uh, the shape call, of water, everybody. Call it the, the shape of living water, you know? The shape of living water. Oh, <laughs> you did it. You did it. Way back in our John Carpenter profile, you busted out the great hymn, Because They Live. <laughs> and now here, once again, the shape, the shape of, of living, living water. water. Come on oh, down, brothers and sisters. Oh, my dear Lord. The oh, water is Lord. fine. So, all right. So, well, yeah. If anyone, if anyone is here today who has not been baptized before, um, <laughs> we do not we do not <laughs> sprinkle at the fear of God. We immerse, brothers and sisters. I think I could appropriately. Uh, I think I could appropriately be accused of perhaps baptizing the shape of water in all of my thoughts. But that's just that's what right. it made me think. It's just what it made that's me feel, do. guys. Don't, it's do just, not. Yes, hey, it's just what it made me think don't, about. Don't get self conscious about that. I'm applauding you. All right. Um, there it is. So, it is. so Pastor Lackey, any other, any other final, <laughs> any other final thoughts? No, no. I will say before we will say it again. But if you have any other thoughts about any of this, then we'd love to hear them because I think it's a, it's a. Hey, let my me, thoughts let me, are still sort of forming. Listen, let me yeah. ask you. So, I, I feel like this this conversation has been very shaping <laughs> to my <laughs> feelings about the shape of water. Do you, what What are your thoughts on? To to elaborate and then to ask for your thoughts, to elaborate a little bit on, I made this reference earlier. When I initially saw the movie, I referenced earlier the sort of overstays its welcome. There was this feeling just structurally, and I think you made a reference. I don't remember if this was on the podcast. It was not on this one, but on the podcast or just in you and I conversation about the escape happening where it does. Yes. You know, sort of just, yeah. just in the narrative. You know, that maybe as a viewer, we are sort of bought in and that's the sort of high point um, action wise. Although, again, yeah, that's the it feels like the climactic. Moment. Right. It's not in the film, but it but it feels like it should be, you know. And, and so I, I don't know. I, I remember the first time I saw the movie having this feeling. Well, and that again, I, I feel like I'm backpedaling to more where I'm, I'm moving back to the shallow end of the pool here. OK. All right, um, yeah, that's probably appropriate because we're about to exit. Right, so that's right, right. We're going to dry off, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Got your flip flops. Right, right, right. Um, there is a part of me, and 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 maybe you can help me engender a little bit of sympathy towards this moment. There's a part of me where the the dance black and white fantasy sequence. Oh yes, yes, it yes, feels yes. really odd and and maybe late, maybe too late um, to really plug into. Um, but some, I can understand th- that those sorts yeah. of moments, like by the end, you, I started to feel like, okay, I'm, I got what you're putting down. I'm ready to yes. be done. And I think, uh, I think visually, so the only defense I would give of that scene, cause it very much is, you know, in a film that despite its fantastical premise is very steeped in realism. Sure. Uh, that that moment feels very uh, of a different film. Yes. Of a different kind of film. Because um, I mean, there aren't other sort of imaginative fantasy scenes no. like that right no but the the two things that it is a culmination of is or two things that i would immediately think of i, th- I think first 
Um, it is kind of a visual representation of what they are doing in the emotional realm. They are feeling each other out. They are having a, a, a dance of sorts with each other. Um, but the second thing is it is very much a culmination. We see her throughout admiring and mimicking people doing these little dances. Um, doing this, you know, the dance on the stairs, the, you know, all of these, yeah, all of these yeah. different things. And so in that sense, I prefer a fantastical imagining on her part where she f- sees herself dancing with this creature than any version of trying to make that moment sure, actually sure, happen sure. between the two of them. Um, so in that sense, while I agree that it feels like it belongs in a different movie, I kind of I kind of think I understand that that's kind of what it's going for in that it's trying to visually represent a culmination of all of these little two steps that we've seen her do throughout the film right. um, and the emotional resonance of what she's been doing with this creature ever since she first encountered right. him. All um, right. Yeah. So, I can, I can yeah. Get behind that. Um, all right. Do you feel like you feel like, uh, you know. Let's getting the pool boy David S. Pumpkins down. Yes, um, yes, to- <laughs> yes. Let's uh, the lifeguard, yeah. the lifeguard to this conversation. Save us, Save us. good old, good old uh, David S. Pumpkins. So, as we do on every film uh, that we cover, we rate in a very specific metric that of Mr. David S. Pumpkins, the Tom Hanks Saturday Night Live character. Um, and so, we rate these films on their style, their scares, and their substance, and then we aggregate that into a number. And uh, as we've seen. That that will reflect basically our feelings about those elements of this film uh, may or may not be directly attributable to the uh, you know accreditation of the film at large. But in the realm of style for this film, one thing that I remember thinking when the when the Oscar came up for like production design, I remember thinking like you know a lot of people thought like oh maybe it'll be Blade Runner, maybe it'll be Dunkirk or whatever. But I was like it's going to be Shape of Water because. I felt like this film had such a distinct visual style. And I feel like, again, we spoke earlier in this conversation about how it is a very complex and very deep film posing as a very straightforward narrative, which I think is a very tight rope to walk on. Um, So for that regard, uh, I'm going to give I'm going to give it a a solid four point five. Ding down to the point five for reasons that, uh, you know, just listen back to our conversation. You'll understand why there's some complication to the narrative. Um, I am going to go maybe surprising you with a four on style. I do think. Ah, okay. Visually, the performances are great. The script is strong. You know, I, I would maybe need to ponder a little bit more some of my feelings about the sort of third act. But overall, there's just a really there's a lot to like. And to really plug in on. Yeah. Um, what about, what about, um, what about for you? Uh, well, I'll, I'll do myself here in terms of scares. There, there, there isn't much for me that really qualifies as that. Um, I'm going to give it a two on the scare factor. It is not a very traditionally what we would categorize a scary movie. I am right there with you. Um, all the things that we would, and this is where the David S. Pumpkins measurement sometimes, uh, uh, you know, dings down lesser, you know, really great films, but they're not very scary. And I, I don't think Shape of Water is very scary. I'm also going to give it a two. Um, I think that there's some, you know, moments here and there that would maybe be like a quick jump um, and the overarching sort of fear of what Strickland does, you know, in his pursuit of conquering this this creature um but yeah two for me for scares um now for substance this one's this one's tough because i feel like viewing the film 
was something that, you know, initially didn't yield a ton of substantial thought. But then in preparing for this conversation, maybe it was just the headspace I was in when I was thinking about it. But I did then I just went on to all of these roller coasters of things. So I'm going to try to split that difference there and give it a four for substance. Um, well, it's funny you land there. So I, in my qualification for the four, I will give it for substance has more has less to do with necessarily. Although I do think it's there in the film and more as not just the culmination of the del Toro series, but also just having looked at so much of his work and having a greater appreciation for what he actually does in execution of his films. I do think there's a lot going on here. You know, you've put it really well in the sense that it's, it's something substantive posing as something semi superficial, you know, so something semi straightforward, not superficial, semi straightforward. Yeah. Um, So in, in the spirit of that, as the final, uh, installment of hashtag del Toro Toro Tour, where we have discussed, goodness gracious, our childhoods and you know, <laughs> the, the, the dalliances of that, of that era, um, culminating in our discussion of the Oscar winning film, The Shape of Water. We award it seven David S. Pumpkins, which feels right. All right. That, that, it it does know, feel that right. It feels yes. appropriate and correct. Um, again, I do think I've got, uh, 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 a, a warmer heart towards this film than I think I did the first time I saw it based on, uh, further ponderance as well as this conversation. Um, I do think for pure, if someone were to say to me, show me what you think is Del Toro's best, I'm probably popping in Pan's Labyrinth, but I totally agree, but yeah, I, 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 I think this is an easy, an easy access point as well. Yep. I agree. I agree. And uh, if you have thoughts on this, if you have thoughts about any of the specific things that Nathan and I have brushed up against, if you have thought uh, thoughts on uh, there, wonderful, there's been a anima- lot of them this episode. There are uh, wonderful. If you have thoughts on wonderful animated shows uh, from the eighties, then uh, you know or anything- American Idol. That's right. Evidently, um, anything that you choose to talk about with us, we would love to hear from you. Um, just stay tuned for our social media cues for how to get together with us, because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. Uh, Nathan, Reed. thank you so, so much uh, for having this conversation with me for this series on Del Toro. Uh, we don't normally do this uh, very much, but I'm going to go ahead and say it on this episode next week. We have a guest on the show. It is uh, the author of a book called Empathy for the Devil. Frequently, we always you know, try to let you know so that you can check out the content. And I already know that some people uh, want to check out the content before they hear the piece. I'm going to encourage you very strongly to listen to the conversation, whether or not you have heard or read that book uh, or heard of that do book. You want to, um, do you want Reed to give them any, if let's say they have an interest in the book, but don't want to read the whole thing. Do you have any like... Yes. Without going too deeply into what the book is, any any elements you would point to? Yeah. Uh, so so the book itself is uh, readily available from Amazon and your local bookstore. Um, it's called Empathy for the Devil. The author is named J.R. Forresteros. Um, and it basically he does a deep dive looking at seven quote unquote villains of the Bible. Um, and I think if you're if you're browsing or if you're looking uh, for like a sampling of it, uh, two good entry points. Uh, you could read his section on Cain to get a flavor for it. Every section has like. Uh, a piece of imaginative fiction about the villain 
and then some expository material that's a bit more sort of uh, hermeneutical and and uh, again expository, just a, a a preacher unpacking the substance of it. Um, you could read his section on Cain. My personal favorite section is towards the end of the book about Judas, but really any of the characters that he mentions. Also the uh, section on Delilah. Um, if you're just looking for like, hey, here's an access point that I can lead into the conversation. But even if you have not seen or heard or read one bit of the book, um, please very, do check out it's our a very fruitful conversation. Spoiler. Yeah, uh, Jr. is a great guy. We really appreciate his taking the the time with us to have the conversation. And uh, and uh, yeah, I, I was I was really uh, very taken with that conversation. So we appreciate him, and we want you guys to hear it. So check that out next week. We'll have Jr. on the show. And uh, until that. Uh, Nathan, thanks so much again, man. Yeah, man. Appreciate it. See you guys next week. Uh, We'll see you next week, guys. Bye. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it is not the end of the conversation. To continue this conversation, you can follow us on Twitter at The Fear of God. Visit us on Facebook to comment on one of our posts or to post there yourself. You can follow Reed on Twitter at Reed Lackey. You can follow Nathan on Twitter at The Nathan Rouse. Visit MoreThanOneLesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next week.